Well, good morning. It is uh, 2020 and first Sunday I planned on being here this year. And, um, and today we're going to talk about the state of the church. State of the church, 2020. Before we get started, let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to bless your name this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the choir musicians and just the opportunity to freely gather and to bless the Lord with our souls, Lord, to join in the the praise, Lord, of all the saints throughout all ages, God, blessing the name of God most high. And oh, Lord, I pray that you'd be honored still, God, in our hearts as we Read your word as we dwell on it and think about it, as we contemplate, Lord, who we are, where you have taken us, and where you want to take us, Lord, I pray that our hearts, Lord, would be inclined to you, to bless you with all that we are, God, not just our voices, but with our lives, Lord, to stand before you, our Lord, one day with clean hands and a pure heart. And to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Grant us this, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. It is a new year, and uh, new years are good opportunities to reflect on uh, where we have been and where... Uh, the Lord would like us to go, both corporately uh, and individually. You know, the danger in life is that you just kind of get into coast mode and you just kind of do things without thinking about what it is you are doing and why it is that you're doing it. And sometimes we get so busy working in life that we never take, take time to stop and work on life. And what good is it if we spend our whole lives working hard at the wrong things. And so it's always good from time to time to reflect and to ask, how's life going? How did last year go? Did I, did I do good things? Not only did I do good things, did I do the best things? Are there good things in my life right now that are keeping me from the best things? Will my life make a real difference, the only difference that matters, the difference that matters to God. Our mission as a church, as we're going to talk about, is to glorify God in our worship of Him through faithfulness and obedience to Him. And uh, in just a moment, we're going to read a passage. Uh, Some of the the letters, uh, just a few from uh, the book of Revelation, Jesus' letters to the church. And we're going to, to the churches, and we're going to reflect on them a little bit as we talk about the state of the church, 2020. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the, la- to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of God may be seated. So this year I just want to reflect, uh, this morning I want to reflect um, and reflect some on last year. Um, Lots of wonderful things happened last year. Um, just to briefly run through some of just some of the things that happened, uh, we hosted the county men's winter revival. Um, we had some youth go to encounter weekend at First Baptist where I spoke. We've held numerous men's and women's Bible studies. We had held pressure, uh, special prayer services for numerous people, um, those with special health needs, and and uh, and one for uh, Pastor Pandu, uh, who is a persecuted pastor in uh, India. We. 
uh, hosted the, the group, group from New Life Baptist Church and had VBS with them, which was an incredible time. We've served in uh, nursing homes with monthly services and our annual birthday party. There's a, this is in addition to all the weekly ministries that happen. For example, those who happen, uh, those which happen every Wednesday where uh, kids uh, from this c- uh, community and, and around come and they hear the gospel and, and, and children are, are, are taught about uh, missions and we, and we gather on Wednesdays to pray together about the needs of our church and about the needs of others to pray for the salvation of the lost and things going on in our world. Last year, we lost five members. They graduated, but we remain because there's still work today. But last year we had no new members and no baptisms, and we're going to talk about that. We have uh, in our Sunday school rooms, we have this purpose statement. It says to teach the Bible, disciple believers, and evangelize the lost in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is a purpose, that is a mission of our classes and really of our church. And any type of summary like that, if you think about it, is just a statement of what every church's mission should be, which is, I believe, a marriage of the great commandment and the great commission. Right? This, is, this, is, this is what we are to be and to do as a church, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Do you love God like that? That's what we're called to as a church. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Great Commission. The Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the way I see it is that the great commandment gives us the why and the great commission gives us the how. We, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And how do we do that? By making disciples. By making disciples of all nations. Just think about it. What greater thing could we do to express our love for God Almighty than to want and earnestly urge and plead with other people to enjoy him like we have. And what greater thing could we do to love our neighbor who, if they are lost in their sin, are destined to eternity in hell, what greater thing can we do to love them than to plead with them to have their sins forgiven in Jesus Christ? To find true life, eternal life. So this marriage of the Great Commission, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission then is a litmus test of whether we being faithful as a church. Are we loving God? Are we loving our neighbors? Are we making disciples? That's the test. That's the test. We are Christ's church. Condo Baptist Church is Christ's church. Every true church is Christ's church. We belong to him. So the pastor isn't the head of the church. The deacons aren't the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. 
And what that means then is if it doesn't matter if we're okay with how things are going if Christ isn't okay. And for that matter, it doesn't matter if we don't like how things are going if Christ does. Because it's not about us. It's about Christ. He's the boss. He's the head. He's the king. And I read these letter, the, a few of the letters to the churches in uh, Asia Minor from Revelation. I think about these from time to time. I think it's worth reflecting on it as we have in the past. Open the P.O. box in the mail one day to Cottondale Baptist Church from Jesus Christ. What would it say? What do you think? I want to note here before we continue on these reflections that in these letters to the churches, each letter opens up with the statement to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Many people believe that in this particular case here, angel, which is a word which actually simply means messenger. That's all the root of the word means is messenger. So many times it refers to what we think of as angelic beings who are messengers of God. But it can also just mean a messenger. Many people believe that in this case, the angel here really just refers to the pastor or elders of the church. That's who it's addressed to, even though Jesus is clearly talking to the church as a whole. So as I reflect on our life and ministry as a church. Rest assured that I feel the burden greater than anybody. And as I reflect on my own personal weaknesses and shortcomings as a pastor and a leader, I feel the weight of where Jesus is taking us and who Jesus calls us to be. So I want you to think about what a letter from Jesus Christ to Cottondale Baptist Church might say. When we look at the church's the, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. What's fascinating, as I was looking through them, is that they're, they're almost on a bell curve. Okay? There, are, there are two of the seven churches that receive only commendation and encouragement. There's four of the seven churches where Jesus has some good things to say and some things that they need to repent of and work on. Four of the seven. That's the majority. And then there's one church, which, God, which Jesus had nothing good to say about. The lukewarm church, by the way. So all of these things, then, uh, uh, I think, I think, it, I think there's, there's a reason that maybe those things kind of fell, fell out. There's a curve, if you will. And in all these things, Jesus' exhortation, all these letters, Jesus' exhortations are the same. Be faithful. Be true. Don't deny me. Don't allow false teaching into your church. Don't embrace unholy lives and impurity in any form in your church. Remain faithful to me. Endure suffering for my name's sake, which is surely coming. And 
And to the extent that we've fallen in any of these, it's to repent and to turn and to come back to our Savior. And so when you read these letters, these are very strong words, but at the same time, they are gracious words. Because in none of these cases does Jesus say that these churches are irredeemable or unforgivable. In fact, he actually says the opposite. Turn. Turn. And you'll be mine and I'll be yours again. There's no problem that turning, repenting, can't solve. The only problem, however, is if we don't. And Jesus says that for the church that does not repent of where it falls from him, he himself will remove the lampstand. Jesus will snuff out the lamp of the church that doesn't follow him. You see, the church, capital C, cannot die. Churches, little c, can die. In fact, Jesus says he's the one who will put them out. If we're not faithful to him. So how can we reflect? And how can we do some honest self-reflection? I think we would fall in the middle of the curve. I think Jesus would have some great things to say. And I think he would say there's some things we need to work on. The things that I think he would praise us for is I think he would praise our love of the truth. In Revelation 2.6, he praised the Ephesian church because they hated the works of the Nicolaitans. They refused to succumb to false teaching and sinful behaviors that the heretical group was bringing into the church. I believe this church, I believe we have a love for the truth. I believe we have a commitment to God's word, a commitment to stand firm to the truth, no matter how unpopular it becomes. And believe you me, it's about to get a lot more unpopular. And so the testimony of this church, especially in in future coming generations, will be this very thing. To stand for the truth, because one of the greatest and oft-repeated warnings in the New Testament is the warnings against false teaching and false teachers. The bare baseline of of being a legitimate church of Jesus Christ is holding the truth of Jesus Christ. If if we don't hold the truth of Jesus Christ, then you're you're not even a true church. And so as a caveat to this, this is an exhortation for us to maintain courage to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ. And especially for young people especially for you young people. You will face pressure that previous generations did not face to deny your faith, to deny clear teaching of the Bible. And to deny God. And it's going to take unusual courage in the coming generation to stand for Jesus because it's going to cost you. And I just want you to be ready. Because if you're not ready, you'll crumble. We must uphold the truth, and I believe we do. 
Next, I believe that a lot of good and faithful ministry has been done in this past year. I mentioned some of those at the beginning. These things don't even touch on things like meals provided for the grieving and the sick, personal gifts given out of individual pockets for the needs of family, the needs of others, the needs in this community, many of which uh, things like that I know of, but others might not. Needs met in secret. Prayers prayed in private. Gospel opportunities seized that don't get advertised and published. I know a lot of those things have gone on. And I believe all this and so much more has been done in faith to the glory of God, and it will carry its own reward with it from the God who sees. And finally, I feel, I believe that we have seen much intangible growth this year. Remember that the mission of the church is the marriage of the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I believe over this past year that many of us within this church family love God more than we did last year. Love him with more of our heart, more of our mind, more of our soul, and more of our strength than we did last year. That's huge. It's huge. And it can't be measured. Can't really put a measuring stick up to that. It's intangible. But it's real. And it's important. And it's significant. Growing love for Christ, growing attentiveness to his word, growing desire to be more greatly conformed by his word individually and corporately as a church, growing desire to be more useful instruments of God, more useful vessels in the hand of the master, more profitable tools for building his kingdom here. A deeper love and appreciation for the God of all grace, a deeper love for neighbor a deeper care about souls, a deeper compassion for those who don't know and love Christ and therefore are on the way to perdition. These things are real. I believe they have increased. They can't be measured. They can only be felt. And this is the foundation of what is needed for us to be used by God in a mighty way. Where can we improve? I think it should break my heart more than it does to see a zero next to the number in baptism. It should break all of our hearts, I think. Not that we can save people, because we can't, only God can save. But I just, think we, I just don't think we can be content going an entire year without seeing somebody brought from hell to heaven, death to life, darkness to light. I just think we can't be content with that. And you know, baptizing zero people, that's, that's not a knock if we have been faithfully sharing the gospel as greatly as we could have, you know, God is God. We can't save people. Only God can save people. Only God can convert people. William Carey was a missionary for seven years before he saw his first convert. 
And so, the, so the, the, the pertinent question then is this, that we have to do some honest self-reflection on. Is the reason why we've seen no fruit born in seeing souls saved, is it, is it truly because we've sown the seed but the ground is really that hard? Or is it because we could have sown and watered and plowed more than we did? I think we have to do some honest self-reflection. I think we can say that we could have hit the plow a little harder. We could have picked up the pick and broken up them rocks and sowed a little more seed and watered a little more buds. And I just can't help but think, you know, I don't know the mind of God. So I can't say with any type of certainty, but I just can't help but think that if we wanted it bad enough and we sought it hard enough and we pled and begged and wept tears over the unsaved souls in our lives and in our paths every day, I can't help but think that God would let us see a little fruit. And so what I want to do this year, there's, Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. On the other hand, Malachi said, God said, put me to the test. Try me. Be faithful to me and see if I won't pour out blessing. I think this may be one of the situations where we can maybe say, we can try to put God to the test. In this sense, plow harder than we've ever plowed before. Pray harder than we've ever prayed before. Sow more than we've ever sowed before. Water more than we've ever watered before. And then if at the end of the year we still haven't seen someone saved, at least we'll know. It was because the ground was that hard. And not because we didn't try. Last year, we launched Who's Your One? And I still think that that's the best tool that we have to think about our mission as individuals and as a church. I understand not everybody is called to be an evangelist. Evangelists are gifts to the church, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 4. Not everyone is an evangelist in in a formal sense or in a Billy Graham sense. But at the same time, we're all laborers in the harvest. And that's why I think who's your one is so important. Because that the call on our lives then, the call on our lives isn't to try to lead a crusade, to lead thousands to Christ. The call of our lives is this. God, would you give me one? One this year, Lord. One this year. For your glory. We can't, we can't do everything for everybody, but we can pursue one person harder than we've ever pursued before. If, if, there, if it were possible for you to know what you know as a Christian and yet be lost, how would you want somebody to come after you?
That's how we're to go after them. If you're like me, I'm ashamed to admit that the pursuit of my one has largely tapered off. And as I was reflecting this week and I was thinking about it, and I was reading these letters to the church in Revelation, there's just one simple word that Jesus has to say to Chad Henley. Repent. Turn. Chad, remember. Stand back up by getting on your knees and pleading with me for souls. Have you forgotten, Chad? My servant Paul and his agony over the Jewish people, the same Jewish people that tried to kill him when he said in Romans 10.1, my heart's desire and earnest prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Or Romans 9.3 where Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul said, if it were possible, he would trade his salvation for theirs. Love of souls. And so I think this year, we need to, as he told the Ephesians, return to our first love, our first earnestness, our love of God, our love of neighbor, our love of eternal souls. Who's your one? Many of them are up here on this board. Not all of them. Love compels us, doesn't it? One person. One person. Make an eternal difference in the lives of somebody else. I challenge us to find a partner, a mission partner. We have... uh, prayer books back on the, uh, on the table. Now's the time to renew our efforts and our labors in praying for our one. Every day, praying for our ones, that they might come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's the mission plans out on the table. You might not know this, but on our website, under About Us, there's a tab that says, Who's Your One? And on that tab, there's a video that explains how to use your mission plan and explains how we can use who's your one to be more intentional, to reach out others, reach out to others in love. In that mission plan, I challenge us to find a partner because anything that is hard and worthwhile and important requires encouragement, teamwork, and accountability. I want you to think about this in Matthew 16, 18. Very famous verse, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word church in Greek just means congregation. It means a gathering of people united about a single purpose. That's what the church means. Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my congregation. I will build that gathering of people who belong to me. And, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that mean? It is clearly implied in that verse that the purpose then of Jesus building his church and the purpose of that congregation is to do what? It's to storm the gates of hell. Right? What What are gates for? Gates aren't weapons. Gates are defensive. The devil's trying to keep us out. 
But Jesus said, he can't. He can't keep us out. We're going to storm the gates of hell. We're going to overrun it. And we're going to take back captives for our king. And I want you to imagine this image. It just stands out to me. You think about wars. You think about mighty battles. You can think about Braveheart. I don't care how you think about it. Would you run towards the enemy's gate with all that you are by yourself? I doubt it. Would you run towards the enemy gates and then you look to your right and then you look to your left and as far as the eye can see multitudes of other people who call on the name of Jesus running with you headlong towards the gates of hell? You'd run then. Why? Because we're in this together. Because we do it together. So the call then is for a comprehensive and collective commitment this year to together commit to plead with God and to cry to him to save our ones and to work intentionally together to see our ones come to saving faith in Jesus. It's not just like it's not just like it's just you when you're one. You have a whole army of people here who will stand beside you and say, what can we do to reach your one? And what this also requires is a reorienting of the way that we think about our everyday lives. Because typically what happens when a pastor gets up here and he says things like this, typically what happens is we think something like this. Oh, the pastor's just given us another thing to add to our busy lives, another thing to do. What if I said that that's the completely wrong way to thinking about it? What if seeking to enjoy and delight in and glorify God by loving him supremely and loving neighbors deeply by pointing others to Jesus Christ isn't an addition to your life? It's the whole point of your life. What if you became the most successful job and you took care of all your earthly business and you stand before Jesus and he said, what did you do that would last forever? What if what I'm telling you is not a thing to add on to your life? What if what I'm telling you is your life and you need to, instead of, stop, instead of trying to fit this into your life, maybe you should make this your life and try to fit everything else around that. <clears throat> Reframing the way we think about our lives. My job is not the goal of my life. God gave me a job so that the people in my workplace and so that my good and hard work for him would create a healthy society in which people can flourish and have the freedom then to know God and to love God and to serve God. That's why God gave me a job. My, my, my family is not the goal of my life. God gave me a family so that I would have people with which I would have intimate relationships with so that I could teach them to know and love and serve and treasure God. Everything else about which we tend to make our lives is actually not the end, but the means to a greater end. Knowing, loving, delighting in, enjoying, and serving God with as many people as we can. Drag with us. We have to reframe the way we think about our lives. And that includes reframing the way we think about church, too. 
The core purpose of what we do as we gather as a church is to worship and adore the living God. And the result of that worship, as, as I prayed in my prayer earlier, you can't, you can't truly enter into the presence of God and remain unchanged. And the point of our gathering, one of the main points of our gathering as we worship God and as we delight in Him and as we look to Him in praise and adoration, we're like a vessel that He fills up. And the point is, is as He fills us up, our vessels to, are to be filled to overflowing so that God's grace is overflowing in out of our lives. Where? Into the lives of others. Right? Into the lives of others. If we fundamentally view church as a place to receive, 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 but we have no intention to give what we've received, then what have we become? We've become cul-de-sacs instead of conduits of God's grace. We've become stagnant pools instead of flowing rivers of God's grace. Which would you rather be? I don't want God's grace to terminate on me I want it to overflow from me into the lives of others. It's cute to feed a baby. But a baby should grow up to learn to feed themselves. But not even even just stop there. But the true calling is to grow up to the point to where you're not just being fed, not just feeding yourself, but you're feeding others. You're providing for others. And that's what we're to grow up to in our Christian life. Not just being fed, not just feeding ourselves, but feeding others. Where are you on that spectrum? And what can you do this year to get you from a place of where you're not just receiving, but you're giving the overflow of what God is pouring into your life? What if the church is less like a luxury Alaskan cruise and more like the USS Iowa? A battleship and not a cruise ship? What if there's an enemy out there hoarding captives, our friends, our neighbors, our families, our ones, and we as the church are not to just cruise by, sipping on sweet tea, getting fat on God's grace? What if the church exists more like this? We exist to ready the artillery, deploy the boats, and storms hell's gates to take back what belongs to God. Our friends, our neighbors, and our ones. If, if our friends, our families, our neighbors, our ones, if this community around this church goes to hell, then let it be over our cold, dead bodies. How do we do this? I'm going to go a little long today. Some ideas. Number one, most importantly, earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. Prayer does two powerful things. It changes things and it changes us. Both have to happen. Prayer changes things and it changes us. We cannot save. Only God can save. If we are going to be tools and instruments in God's hands of God's saving grace then God's going to have to manifestly act by his spirit in our lives and in the lives of our ones. 
And the glory of it is this, God hears prayer. And so if we're going to see anything happen this year that's supernatural, God has to do it. And the way God does things, the way God delights to do things is in response to the prayers of his people. And so if we're going to see people saved this year, we're going to have to commit both individually and corporately as a church to pray for our ones and for the lost people in our lives harder than we've ever prayed before. And to not be content until God answers prayer. There's a story, I think it was um, um, George Mueller, who had four people, four people that he prayed for his entire life. I think one of them didn't get saved till decades after he started praying for him. And guess what? He died. And the other two got saved after he died. God hears prayer. God answers prayer. What if we prayed? Prayer changes things and prayer changes us. You say, I could never really lead, I could never lead someone to Christ. Well, how about this? What if you prayed so regularly and so earnestly for that person that you couldn't think about that person without thinking, oh my gosh, I wish they'd be saved. What if you prayed so regularly and so earnestly for someone that that they were just on your mind continually on a regular basis such that when you see them, your heart just wells up with just angst and earnestness at the condition of the, the lost condition of their souls. What if you invested so much in your prayer life into this person, you invested so much of your time, so much of your energy, so much of your heart, so much of your tears into this person that the thought of them ultimately dying and go to hell, you put too much in it to let it fall to the ground. Such that the next thing you know, you find yourself pleading with them to be saved. Why? Because the more you invest in something, the more you care about it. The more you put into it, the more, the more that you have in it, the more you can't, you can't bear to see it fail. What if we put so much into our ones that we wouldn't be able to bear the thought of them falling to the ground? That's one way that prayer does what? It changes us. It empowers you to do what you didn't think you could ever do on your own. Why? Because it burdens you and it teaches you to love and it teaches you to see from God's perspective in a way that you might not now. So that what happens? You really change and you really, your love for that person really increases to the point where you can't just sit by, but you have to do something about it. Prayer changes things and prayer changes us. And so one of the things I want to do in response to that is this. I want to designate our time at the altar every Sunday as a time and an opportunity for you to pray for your one. I want this to be our opportunity as a church to manifestly, visibly, every week, get on our knees before God and beg him for the souls of our one. Pastor, I don't want to go up there. Pastor, uh, I, don't, I don't like people looking at my back. I don't like the way the back of my head is shaped. Well, let me tell you something. If you were lost and going to hell, would you want somebody to get over your, themselves and get on their knees and pray for you? I would. So let's get over ourselves and get serious about seeing lost people saved. We're not playing games here. We're not playing church. 
God has put us here for a reason. So I want to designate the prayer time at, at the end of every service as a time to get serious about praying for our ones. Next thing is, is teamwork and accountability in small groups. We have various kinds of small groups around this church. We, the most prominent, of course, is, is Sunday school. And there are other types of, there are other types of group. I have a men's discipleship group, for example, that meets once a month. Okay. And, uh, and there's a uh, we prayer meeting that's essentially a small group. There's various kinds of small groups here at this church. The purpose of a small group is that this Sunday morning is great. Sunday morning is great. But guess what? It's easy to slip in and slip out and not talk to a single person. And not receive encouragement in what God is calling us to do. And so that means that if we're going to get serious, I believe... One of the first steps is being serious is that every member of this church needs to be involved in a small group. Pastor, I can't wake up at 10 o'clock, 9.30. Did you work? You're telling me you can wake up at 7 a.m. to get to work at 8 a.m. your entire life, but you can't wake up at 9.30 to worship God? I shouldn't have said that. Someone's going to email me about that. If we want to see God do things, we got to get serious. Stop playing around. Every person in a small group, find one. Get in it. Dig in. And as part of that, use those groups. Develop a more missional mindset in those groups. Asking and talking to one another about how your pursuit of your one is going. And how we can help you in that mission. Right. That's the point. That's that, that's really the point. Right. Of our small groups. Right. And that's really the point of church. Right. We need to think of, of Sunday school really less like school and more like special forces training. All these military analogies. But think about this. What if you were a Navy SEAL? What if you did all that training? What if you know all the right tactics and maneuvers to do when you're in hand-to-hand combat? What if you know all the special strategies to do when you see, a, when you see a, 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 an army base and you know how to infiltrate it? What if, you, what if you have all these skills and you have all this knowledge and you have all this wisdom and you have all this understanding and you never leave the room to go join the war? You've wasted it. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. This is special forces training. To do what? Not to just grow in our knowledge. That's the base. That's important. That's primary. But growing in our knowledge isn't the end. The end is to use that knowledge to worship and serve God more. And to be equipped to make an eternal difference in the world. I talked about the mission plans already. There's some other things that I'd like to incorporate. For example, testimonies. If you have any type of testimony about how God is working in your life or the life of your one, and you'd like to share it, I want to hear about it. And if it's appropriate, I want to give you the opportunity to share it so that we can see what God is doing. We're going to have some opportunities. I'm going to, we're going to strive to provide some opportunities to facilitate ministries to your one. One way to do that is our major services, for example, Easter, Christmas, things like that. Some people might not go to church any other day, but they'll go that day. A family and friends Sunday I want to plan. 
We want to do some training on Sunday nights as well, and we'll talk more about that. And finally, one op- another opportunity that just uh, that um, got brought to my attention this morning that is a need that I do want to mention is this. Um, there are people who, some are members of this church, some aren't members, but there are those who would come to church, but maybe they're shut in, maybe they don't have a car, maybe they can't drive. I think... I think it would be very profitable if we had a Sunday bus ministry. You say, I can't lead someone to Christ. Well, can you pick them up and bring them to church? What is that? You're leading them to Christ. Can you drive? Then I think you can make an eternal difference. And you know what? I really think, too, I think there are some people in some parts of this community, if we go pick someone up and we knock on a certain amount of doors and say, hey, if we pick you up, would you come? They'll say, oh, yeah, I'd come. What is that? It's opportunity to lead people to Christ. So maybe that's you. Think about it. Pray about it. Let me know. We'll make a difference. As we close, I just want to say this. <clears throat> the church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is for his church. And he and the the, the glory of, of knowing Christ is this. It doesn't depend on us ultimately. It depends on him. The way that we receive more power from Jesus is not being better or stronger for Jesus. It's being more desperate for Jesus. How does a church make a difference, an eternal difference in the world? This is how. By getting desperate for God. By getting desperate for God. And I believe if we do that one thing, humble ourselves, and get desperate to see him move in our lives and in the lives of others. I believe he'll do what only God can do. And we'll be able to give him the praise for it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Oh, God, thank you for being your 